0: Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton cycling newsletter. This week, we are talking about the Tour de France, the mountain stages over the past weekend, stages eight and nine, as well as the sprint stage today, just won by Mark Cavendish. I'll just talk about that first, since that's fresh on my mind. But first, let's welcome Idaho & Foods, the presenting sponsor for our Tour de France coverage on both the podcast and the newsletter. Idahoan Foods is offering 30% off any order at shop.idahoan.com during the Tour de France for listeners if you enter the discount code BTP30 at checkout. This code can also be used for 30% off and free shipping on your first subscription order. If you think you're going to be ordering more than once, that is definitely the way to go because you'll also get 15% off and free shipping on every future delivery after that. You can mix and match your favorite 100% real Idahoan potato products and receive free shipping on any order over $55 from their website. All their products are naturally gluten-free. Idahoan's 100% real Idaho potatoes are fresh dried to make prep easy and done within minutes. It's a no-brainer. And this is important for cyclists out there. Did you know that a 2019 study published in the Journal of Applied Physiology concluded that eating potatoes during prolonged cycling is as effective as commercial carbohydrate gels to support exercise performance? Furthermore, potatoes are a promising savory alternative for athletes because they are a cost-effective, nutrient-dense, whole food source of carbs compared to the overly sweet carbohydrate gels. This is big because I get an upset stomach with gels. And bars. Sometimes I won't even eat them because I just, uh, I just can't. I can't bring myself to do it on rides, and then I underfuel and I underperform. There's nothing worse than underperforming. So Idahoan Foods potato products will help you mitigate those underperformance disasters. Go to shop.idahoan.com to get 30% off during this Tour de France by just entering BTP30 at checkout. All right, back to the cycling. I'll just talk about Cavendish's sprint victory on stage 10, because that's fresh in my mind. I just watched it. This stage continues the theme of just every day is a GC day. Every day is is exciting. It's crazy. I thought that this would be a pretty boring stage. I thought I... I thought that maybe a break would get away, that a big break would would get up the road since we had some climbs early. I got some some hate mail for that um, after I sent out my rest day my rest day update saying that saying I, I needed to sober up before I make my predictions. but uh apparently I was wrong apparently i, I was drunk during that because, yeah, not even close to a breakaway day. We had tosh van Vanders- Tosh Vandersar and Hugo Hu up the road, but it was it was never serious like as close as like 110k to go uh with the intermediate sprint sonny cabrelli was sprinting for that he beat michael matthews in an uphill sprint and they like they almost pulled the break back during that intermediate sprint so you could tell right there that, that, that this wasn't going to last and they pulled him in probably way earlier than they wanted to i think they pulled him in with like 37 36k to go something like that and then we had crosswinds things got crazy bike exchange was up front theory was probably to break things up and drop cavendish before the finish so matthews would have a clean run at the line uh we'll set aside whether that makes any sense or not because then you still have like Wout van art and jesper phillips in there and maybe you'd just be better off saving your energy for um for leading them out in the finish but they tried something and it worked i mean the speed was high it was like 75 kilometers an kilometers an hour. The Peloton did did split up, but missed out on the first one. Jumbo Visma broke it up with the Kona quick step. Jonas Vindegaard made the split because he has, um, it was actually for the first time in this race, I thought Jumbo Visma looked really coherent and in supportive of Vindegaard. I thought they I thought they balanced the Vindegaard-Wout Van Aert stage win versus GC priorities pretty well today. But yeah, they broke it up, which, which worked for both of them, because if Wout Van Aert drops a bunch of the sprinters he can maybe win the stage. If Vindigar drops a bunch of DC guys, he can move up. And it succeeded. At first, they dropped Pogacar. He had to close the gap by himself. I mean, that was pretty shocking. And that was just the first echelon where he's isolated. He's alone. People smelled blood. Um, EF was was really good. Yeah, I thought EF's been pretty bad in the, in the mountains of supporting Rigoberto Iran. It hasn't really mattered because Iran is so cool, so calm, so collected, um, and just pretty... Uh, experienced enough that he can fend for himself in the mountains, especially if he's not being attacked. They they were really impressive today. They were up there also giving it a go in the crosswinds. I thought the big thing that stuck out to me was Carapaz was alone. Carapaz was doing a great job. He's a great bike racer, really skilled, really has great technical skills and can read a race really well. And his Ineos team was just, they were all dropped. They were nowhere to be seen. And they had actually, they they all got caught up in a crash earlier. I thought today they looked fairly disinterested. Disinterested in racing, Garrett Thomas, Theo Gagenhart, Richie Port. When the when the echelons were going, the race was on at the front. They were just kind of like chilling out at the back. It, it was it was kind of unacceptable. You know, you could just say, well, they got caught out and and they knew it was over, so they sat up. But how, how are you getting caught out? Everyone knows as soon as the breakaways caught that excuse. Pardon my French, but shit's going to go down when there's no breakaway up the front. Off the front on a sprint stage, and you have crosswinds. I mean, that's like racing 101. Everyone knows that that is when stuff goes because you know because guys are incentivized to attack because they could win the stage because there's no brakes sitting three minutes up the road. And if there's crosswinds, the GC riders think everyone's in concert of thinking, well, I can attack here, and if I'm a sprinter, I can get away with a small group and win because the other sprinters are caught behind. And B, if I'm a GC rider like Vinaigre, I can make up two minutes, three minutes on Pogacar in this finish. It's inexcusable that Ineos wasn't up there. I, I, I don't know what happened in that, on that rest day, but you know it looked today like Thomas and Richie Port and Teo Gegenhardt are thinking, we're out of this race. This sucks. What are we doing here? I mean, that's really the vibe I got from them, es- especially with that mid-stage crash and they all just were kind of like loafing back to the cars. I mean, they, they have a guy trying to get second. I mean, still trying to win this race. I mean, and they, they could have done a lot of damage if they were up there. You know, polling with uh, EF and Yumbo and Bora and, D- and Dukona Quickstep, you know, they possibly could have popped Pogachar and, and put some serious time into him. They could have put two, three minutes into him in the last, you know, 20K of this stage. So, you know, that was really, really ridiculous. I'll, I'll, I'll circle back on that in a second. But, you know, nothing ended up, we did end up getting a split, but there, there was no real GC implications there. Um, no stage win implications. Sunny Cabrelli flats uh things slow up he catches back on you know right then you know he's not going to win the stage because it's just he's had to work too hard to catch back on but at the same time he was not going to win the stage anyway so uh didn't didn't totally matter there uh he was just going for points i don't even know if he ended up yeah he ends up 17th on the stage probably picks up some green, green jersey points he's not a great bunch sprinter um he's he's riding out of his out of his mind at the moment he's a, like now one of the best climbers in the sport apparently, but yeah, cannot sprint, um, which is going to make things maybe a little tough for the, for the green jersey. We'll also get, you know, touch on that a little bit later. Uh, coming into the finish, I mean, it was all the story of the day is the kind of quick step lead out. It was textbook. I think Cavendish said that um, after the stage. It was perfect. Um, you know, they're good. They're They're clearly good. They're clearly motivated. I was wondering yesterday, it's like, well, are these big stars really just going to be like, well, the rest of my tour is delivering Mark Cavendish two stage wins and helping him win the green jersey. Uh, but they—they they really looked committed to that. I mean, maybe that is what they're going for for the rest of the the rest of the race. And uh, I mean, really impressive by that team if they can get all those stars behind that. Because you know they let him out perfect. It was a tricky finish. There was a few bends. They kind of came around a turn with you know maybe two three hundred meters, and he gets let out perfectly by Morkov and. Um, Wout van Aert and Jasper and behind him are actually traveling quite a bit faster in the last hundred meters, but they just can't come around him because they've left it too late. Um, you know, watching, I was thinking like, you know, Wout should go. Like, once Cavendish is in front of you and sprinting, you don't really come around him. He, he's so good. He's, he's. I think he's the best sprinter of all time, and he's just good at once he sees the line and he has clear space, he's not letting anyone around him. Um, especially Philipsen. Phillipson has a great turn of speed. I thought. You know, maybe they could have jumped him early, but you know, it, it's possibly just too hard with that Dakuna quick-step lead out that I'm oversimplifying it, that those two guys just got beat by a better lead out. Um, highly possible that that's the case. Other notes from the, from the stage wind is Cavendish gets one spot closer, or one win closer to Eddie Merckx's record. He's now 33 career stage wins. Eddie Merckx is 34. Um, and there are, I mean, yesterday I was thinking, well, maybe he's not going to be able to win all these, you know, there's a lot of, I, there, I guess there's sprint stages. I think they, they are kind of tricky, like stage 12, you know, it's not, these are not flat stages. There's a climb with, you know, like 10 kilometers left on stage 12. Nimes to Karstakhan on stage 13 that, you know, that's a tricky stage too, but he's riding so well. You know, if you remember in 2015, he got dropped in this same finish, uh, today's finish, Coming in, and you could see that teams knew that, and were trying to drop him on the on the run into the finish. But he's just better. He's fitter than he was at this point in 2015, which is pretty amazing to think about. That was six years ago. The guy's 36 years old now, and he's stronger than he was when he was 30. Uh, So yeah, I've kind of changed after watching today. It's like, wow, maybe he he might be able to win two more stages before we even get to the Pyrenees. And if he's present in Paris on stage 21, there's no way he's not winning that. You know, he looks, he looks so fit, so focused. Um, and Cavendish, one thing about Cavendish is once he gets on a roll, he's really hard to beat. I mean, I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, this was 20, 2008 or 2009. I think he won four consecutive stages. Uh, he just gets on a roll and, and really starts popping them off. And, you know, I thought there would be a little bit more attacking uh, from teams like you know F- Groupana FDJ who lost their sprinter uh, Arno Demar in the Alps he didn't make the time cut. Um, same thing with Alpha and Phoenix losing Tim Merlier. I thought those teams would maybe get a little bit more um, aggressive at the, at the beginning of the stages and like in the in the final 30 kilometers to try to you know maybe get a reduced group so they can try to not sprint against Mark Cavendish. but you know it looks like FDJ they're, they're more focused on just keeping David Gudu you know, fairly high up in the GC. He's not that high up though. You know, maybe they're just thinking, you know, a top 10 finish for Goddu and keeping Stefan Kuhn, I guess, fresh for the final time trial. I don't know. I, I was a little disappointed with that. You, I did see Stefan Kuhn try to have a go after the intermediate sprint today, but yeah, they, they were not really, you know, focused on that, dedicated to that. And if these teams are just kind of making up the numbers on these. You know, I I guess they're calling them flat stages. They're not that flat. There's quite a bit of climbing in them. Then Cavendish could he he could break the record. I think he'll tie the record before the Pyrenees, and then he might break it in Paris in the final day, which would be which would be pretty cool. So, um, nice little subplot we have for the second week. And as far as green jersey implications, uh, Sonny Cabrelli was was closing the gap really fast over the weekend. I thought for sure that I thought he might be able to take green today. Um, and the intermediate sprint was so hard. It was like at the top of a three kilometer, not that steep, but a, but a climb. And Cabrelli roasted everyone, gets the points. Cavendish gets no points. But then by the end of the stage today, Cavendish pulls out his lead. He has 82, an 82 point lead in the green jersey on a day that Cabrelli, I thought, would, would pull back time or would pull back points. Um, and then, you know, Cavendish has only won a single green jersey in his career. I think people think he's won more. Uh, But he doesn't go for intermediate sprints, and you know maybe if it's a flat stage and he thinks he can get second or third, he'll expend some energy to do that. But his theory is, you know, I'm here for stage wins. He even said this after the stage, Um, I think my rivals are expending too much energy on these intermediate sprints, and that's why I'm winning these stages so easily. Um, And there could be something there, but the problem is, if you want to win the points jersey, unless you can really be confident you can win like four, five, or even six sprint stages, which is very rare, Um, almost has never happened. You can't really win the green jersey because once we get into the, you know, transition stage, medium mountain stages, mountain stages, uh, these guys like Cabrelli we saw on Sunday just just destroyed. You know, he picked up so many points over that while Cavendish is just stuck in the groupetto. So it is hard to win a green jersey the way he's racing. But he said he's he's just focused on winning stages. If that gets him the green, he's happy. But he's not going to change his focus and start chasing mid-stage green jersey points. So. It's still, the, the competition's still alive because of that. And I, I totally whiffed on that. I thought before, I, it's actually embarrassed. I wish I could scrub this from the internet. I thought that Sagan would win this running away. Maybe Matthews could, could challenge him, maybe Cabrelli. Uh, Sagan looks bad. He looks really bad. You know, he's finishing in these bunch sprints, but he's not finishing high up. I mean, he finished eighth today. I think like a fourth and maybe a fourth place is the highest he's finished so far. No, fifth place. He got fifth place on stage four, fifth place on stage six. I think this is probably the deepest we've ever gone into a Tour de France without a Sagan po- stage podium. Um, he looks really bad. He, got, he couldn't even compete at the intermediate sprint. Uh, I don't know what's going on there. I thought he looks pretty good at the Giro, but he's definitely looks like he's taking a step back and regressed for this tour. The plus side is that we, we have a really lively... An interesting fight for the green jersey, and that's I think that's going to get us through this second week, or shall I say, I thought that would get us through the second week because it would be kind of a, the GC battle would be lowered to a simmer. I thought that had to happen to keep things sustainable because how can they really just race like this every day, all day? Um, and most of the stage today, what was boring? I mean, I mean not boring. I had I had a fine time watching it, just kind of having it on while I was doing other things. Yeah, and that last 30k, I mean, the GC race was on, you know. Rigoberto Uran and Vinegard were really trying to put time into Tadej Pogacar, and they almost did. They, they had him drop for a little bit. So, you know, maybe the second week will be just as active, and then the third week will be just as active. But something tells me that it has to chill out at some point. Um, and just, just to talk about Pogacar for a second, Stage 8, if you missed it on Saturday, that was maybe one of the most impressive performances I've ever seen in the Tour de France. He was seven minutes back on Mike Woods, who was leading the race at the time or like front of the race, not leading the race overall, with 30 kilometers to go, with two climbs left to go. He catches Mike Woods before the finish and only loses his stage by 49 seconds, which means he pulled back roughly three and a half minutes on each of those two climbs to really good, really good riders. I mean, Dylan Toons is a strong rider. He ended up holding him off to win the stage. Super impressive win. But Pagachar just Oh my God. He put over—he three and a half minutes into the next best GC contenders. Vingegaard, Carapaz, Oran, Enric Maas, David Godu, Palo Bilbao, Wilco Kellerman, Ben O'Connor. We'll come back to Ben O'Connor. And those are good riders. Those are really good riders. And they lose three and a half minutes on a single mountain stage. It wasn't even the hardest mountain stage of the weekend. We get to stage nine. Um, and, and this is what... So I was talking about Ineos before. I was listening to the Cycling Tips podcast, and they were saying, like, Ineos has Pogaccio right where they want him now because they're they're such a strong team. They're so good in the crosswinds. They're just going to put this guy in the mix in the crosswinds, and, like, this is actually good for them. But um, I I think what's so telling is, so after they get, you know, really destroyed on Stage 8, they come back on Stage 9, and they they don't do anything. Um, Ben O'Connor gets in the break, in the early break. I, I wonder if UAE let him into the break to put pressure on the rest of the, you know, everyone else then in second through tenth overall is worried about Ben O'Connor because he's taking their spots. And at one point he was leader on the road. Pagacher never was really concerned about it. Cause even if he's 40 seconds behind Ben O'Connor, what does he care? You know, he can put three and a half minutes into the best riders in the race, whatever he wants. So it's not really a big threat for him, but for, you know, Rigoberto Oran, Jonas Vindegaard, Richard Carapaz, that is a big threat because it means he had Four to five minutes on them at one point, and they can't count on pulling back Ben O'Connor. I'll get into that in a second as well. Um, and so Ennios has to come to the front and work on the final climb because UAE runs out of guys. But UAE knows we just have to get Tadej Pogacar to the final climb because once he's on the final climb, it doesn't matter if he has any teammates or not. He he can ride by himself. The only risk is he gets isolated with two or three climbs left, and maybe someone could put him in the mix there. But as we saw on Sunday, then Ennios takes up the pace. I don't know if they thought they were putting him into difficulty or what, but Garrett Thomas is sitting in the front. Tadej Pogacar looks bored behind him. And then when Richard Carapaz tries to launch an attack, Tadej Pogacar just counters him. Carapaz is actually worse off than if he wouldn't have attacked because now he's struggling to get on the wheels of the other riders like Iran and Vinegard, And Pogacar just just casually rides in 30, with a thirty-two second second gap to those guys, so he actually extends his lead on a day that the others were trying to take time on him, and he looked he looked pretty easy taking that time. He actually was coasting across the line, so um, that should should send shivers down their spines. There's also maybe a little bit of a theory here where if he if, like you should strike while the iron's hot. Remember Marco Panati said that when he had him on about um, Bernal de Giro. Because, um, A, you take time. Time's always good. It's a time based stage race. You want time on the others. That's how you win. But it also means if he's weak in the third week and he's exposed and vulnerable, the others might not attack him because he's been punishing them for attacking him now. So you might never find out. A great example of this is Chris Froome in the third week. I believe that was his last tour win. So that must have been the 2017 Tour de France where they didn't attack him up to. Paraguay, Paraguay, I've never quite understood that. There's like uh, multiple per- uh, Parasud, and then there's like Paraguay, which is like above Parasud. I don't know. Someone fill me in, at me on Twitter about it. Um, but he he was he was like a dead man climbing. And if he they would have attacked him at the bottom of that climb, he probably loses that tour. But they don't attack him until like 500 meters left in the stage. He loses you know significant amounts of time in that 500 meters. But he can hold the yellow jersey and go on to win the race because they were just too afraid to attack him early. They didn't think that he was hurting. So that's what Pagachar is is laying the groundwork for here. People are going to be so intimidated by him. They're not going to attack him or want to attack him in the third week. And then Ben O'Connor is now sitting second overall with a three over three-minute gap to Rigoberto Uran in third. Um, and he does what Ineos needed to be doing. What, I mean, I don't know what Ineos is thinking. You can't wait until the final climb to attack Tadej Pogacar, because how are you going to drop him on the final climb? He's stronger than you. You need to attack him early. You need to get creative. Um, and they've shown no creativity or, frankly, strength in this race. I mean, today, this today was like a, a pure test of strength in the crosswinds, and they're caught in the back And Carapaz is alone. Like, Karapaz is worse off than Tadej Pogacar today. And all we've been hearing about, and it's from me as well, so I'm guilty of this too, is how strong Ineos is and how weak UAE is. But when the chips have been down, Ineos does not look strong at all. Um, and, and part of that is because Garrett Thomas separated his shoulder. So yeah, he's not as strong as he is, but it's also they're just, they're old. They're beat up. They're washed up. I mean, Rich, Richie Port is 36. I think Garrett Thomas is 35 or 36. Mikhail Kievkowski is strong, but he's not a, a last guy on a climb. You know, he, you can't count on him to, to break something up. So it's like, they're, they're just, they didn't come to this race prepared. They probably didn't pick their strongest team. I mean, Egan Bernal is probably their best GC rider. Adam Yates is one of their best GC riders. I have no idea why those two guys aren't at this race. Uh, they picked, you know, Garrett Thomas and Richie Porter, just not as strong as the others. I said this at the Criterium du Dauphiné, where Mark Padoon's not as strong as Tadej Pogacar, and he was crushing those guys. And I said, that was going to be a problem. It's definitely been a problem. Um, and it's just so annoying to hear it like, well, it's actually Ineos has actually got this right where they want him. You know, this is perfect for them. They're such a strong team. They have Luke Rowe. He can, he can put five minutes into Pagachar in a crosswind. Well, it's like, well, where were they today? It's like, they just left Carapaz up there by himself. I couldn't believe it. He that sh- that should be embarrassed. I mean, and what's it, one interesting thing about Pagachar is he's making these super teams look stupid. He's out there riding pretty dated and, and inferior technology. I mean, those Colnago bikes are not as fast. They're probably some of the slowest bikes in the race. He's riding narrow rims on tubulars, while everyone else has these fancy tubeless wheels, and he's just crushing them. It's hilarious. But then this gets us into uh, so, so the narrative so far, and you know, I, I somewhat still buy into this that Carapaz is Pogachar's biggest threat. That he's the second best rider in this race. You know, all signs know kind of point to that, but if we look at it, there's a bit of a problem forming here for him where he's getting outridden so far in this race he's been outridden by Rigoberta Iran, Jonas Vinegard, and specifically Ben O'Connor and, and that should be a little bit concerning uh, We'll just talk about Iran and Vinegard quick and then we'll get into O'Connor where you know Iran has a you know not a big but a comfortable 15 second lead on him. Vinegard's only a second ahead of him, but you know. The problem is those guys are putting time into him in the time trials, so he's going to have to you know, exceed their times by the time he gets to the final time trial to then finish ahead of, ahead of them. He's sitting in fifth place now. Um, his team, I guess, in theory, is still trying to unseat Pogachar. I've seen little evidence of this actually working. It's possible that actually something wrong with Ineos is, you know, if you go back to stage nine, they're sitting on the front on the final climb, you know, maybe that's all they've done really in the past. They've never really they, they raced the zero in 2020 differently, but that was not really a stacked field. They just had the strongest team there. They could get into breaks and do whatever they wanted. They're not really a, a team that has an attacking ethos or mentality. All they've really done to win seven Tour de Frances in nine years is sit on the front on final climbs. And then the rider who's the strongest, who's their leader, will just drop everyone. And that, and that, the problem is they keep continuing to do that. It makes sense because that's all they know. You do what you know, and that's what they know. Uh, it's not going to work here, though, and that's a big problem. And it's not going to work on Tadej Pogacar. The problem is it might not work on Rigoberto Urán or Jonas Vingard, who appear to be just as strong as Richard Carapaz. Totally, it's not totally obvious to me where he's going to get the time on them. If his Ineos team just put all their brain trust into isolating and dropping Rigoberto Urán maybe you know that would probably work but are they really going to do that that's a team with seven out of the nine last tour victories who would then pivot to racing for a podium spot that i think that's going to be hard for them to stomach so it's going to be really interesting to watch what Ineos does going forward here and then we get to ben o'connor uh the guy is two minutes behind pogacar which sounds like a lot but when you go to third iran is five minutes 18 seconds behind Pagachar, i should say so iran is riding really well um I've been super impressed by him. We saw at Tour of Switzerland, that's, if you remember that Stage 7 time trial, went up a mountain and then down a mountain. Iran wins the time trial. He outclimbed Richard Carapaz, which the time I kind of flagged as a little bit of concern, like, wait, what's going on here? So Iran can time trial better than Carapaz. You know, not, that's not huge news. He's a better time trialist than Carapaz generally, but the fact that he was climbing on a sustained alpine climb significantly better than carapaz was a little concerning to me and he's just carried that straight straight into the tour i mean he is climbing really well i mean actually he doesn't show up on tv that much he's he's really riding just like stealthily under the radar which is great for him he thrives when he's under the radar if you remember i also believe that was the 2017 tour where he got second place to chris Froome um there's a very similar ride to that and he looks so good that and the problem is he, no one's testing him he just has to sit on wheels you know Ineos is fighting with Pagachar and Iran is isolated but he can just sit on wheels and he's totally comfortable doing that he doesn't really get dropped the only person dropping him is Pagachar he doesn't panic about that he doesn't try to attack Pagachar that's a key thing he's not tried to attack or respond to any Pagachar moves and I think that's his like secret weapon. He he doesn't have a big ego. He's able to separate that, you know, that you know maybe winner's mentality that he he definitely has, but just you know being practical. Like you know I'm not going to respond to this because I'm going to blow up the way Richard Carapaz did on stage. Well, I guess stage seven and stage eight. If you remember, Carapaz attacked on stage seven, gets chased down. He's used a lot more energy than Iran has so far. So, yeah, in short, I've been super impressed with Iran that he's able just to kind of ride. He never overextends himself. And when he's riding like this, you know, the problem with Iran is a lot of times he just shows up out of shape um, and then he just gets dropped. But he doesn't normally blow up. You know, if he starts a Grand Tour well, he usually finishes him well. So um, I would be if I was a rider trying to get on the podium, I, I would be concerned because Iran looks really good. He would probably be my favorite for second if if I didn't love Ben O'Connor so much. So Ben O'Connor has a three plus minute advantage on Iran. Um, And you you look like, well, how did this happen? Well, I isolated three GC set pieces. So normally in a normal tour, differences are made on time trials and big alpine climbs. I, I just refer to those as GC set pieces. So we have stage five time trial, stage eight, alpine day, stage nine, alpine day. If we look at these set pieces, Ben O'Connor is actually 46 seconds ahead of Tadej Pogacar. And then the others, Jonas Vinegard has lost 4 minutes, 19 seconds. To Pogacar, Iran's lost 5 minutes. Richard Carapaz has lost 5 minutes, 36 seconds. Uh, this is This should be a little bit concerning because going forward, most of the differences are, you know, I guess it's always possible. There's a big crosswind day. I think people tend to overestimate, maybe not how often crosswinds happen, but how often catastrophic gaps happen in crosswinds. A lot of the crosswind stages are like today, where it's like, ooh, that that almost got serious, but it didn't. It's actually somewhat rare where a race blows up in the crosswinds, especially at the tour where the teams are so strong. Going forward, I think a lot of the gaps are going to have to be made on set pieces, and so uh, Ben O'Connor is only. You know he's only trailing Pogacar in the GC because he lost over two minutes on the first two stages. Those explosive, you know, summit not summit, just uphill finishes, and in the Breton region, um, that's just like really his weak point, not a specialty. But the fact that he's done so well on these set pieces tells us he's not going anywhere. People are referring to him like he's some visitor on the podium. That it's like, oh, it's nice for him to be here, but you know the real guys are going to come, are going to drop him soon. But You know, he was not dropped. If if you remove Pogacar from the equation, he was not dropped by any GC riders on stages eight. And uh, obviously he beat everyone on stage nine. He won the stage. But on stage eight, he finishes with those guys. So there's no, there's there's been no mountain stage where he's just blown up and lost time. Um, He only lost time on, on explosive stages. Those two stages, that's ingredients are not happening again. You know, those stages are so explosive, so hard because of the first two of the race, and he survived that first week. That first week was not good for him. And then now he's taking time on everyone, including Pogacar. You know, hes I don't think he's going anywhere at all. He got top 10 at Criterium du Dauphiné and Tour of Romandy this year. You know, he's not going to win. I don't think he, there's no way he wins the Tour unless Tadai Pogacar has a, has a massive problem. But I think he's going to finish on the podium. And I, I like him for second. That's a big gap for a strong rider like that. And If you remember that final climb on stage nine on Sunday, they didn't really put that much time into him, even though he'd been off the front for over 100 kilometers at that point. You know, they, they should have melted away. That gap should have melted down like butter on a hot day. But he held it pretty strong. And UAE and Ennios came to the front of pole pretty hard. Um, I even thought that UAE would want to gift him the stage or to gift him the jersey so that Pogacar wouldn't have to deal with it. But they didn't. I mean, they were clearly pegging him back. He's definitely the real deal. It actually kind of bothers me that it's like a steam cycling journalist, like, oh, yeah, and then Ben O'Connor, he'll obviously fade away. It's like, whoa, whoa, pump the brakes on that. The guy has taken time on the set piece days. This guy, he's not going anywhere. Um, he's a good rider. He's fairly young, he's in his mid 20s. He's just now got off the, uh, a bit of a toxic team. I guess it was uh, Dimension Data when he joined it, then NTT, now like Quebec uh, Next Hash. You know, people don't tend to do well there, and he was one of the best performers there. So the fact that he could do that well in that team, and now he's at Ajay Duer, you know, after two months after joining the team, they realize, oh my God, this guy's really good. Let's extend him through 2024. Originally, he just had a one year contract um, after being unemployed in the offseason. So he's clearly hugely talented. It is a great pickup for that team that, that really has struggle, struggled for success in recent years. Um, other quick notes on the weekend is, yeah, I, I thought Alaphilippe and Wouts van Art might be GC contenders. I have gotten a lot of shit for this. I got a one-star rating on iTunes. My, my, God, it's killing me. Saying I don't watch the races because I thought these guys might do well in the GC. Ugh, the hate is, the hate is coming. But, um, yeah, I, I thought, I mean, Philippe has gotten a fifth overall at the tour before. I didn't think that was crazy. Um, I thought he looked better this year than when he got fifth. So um it's not like i'm just like making stuff up over here uh the wow pick was a was a little wild a little out of left field but he did get second at torino adriatico and i thought he did well on stage eight he loses a little bit he loses about a minute more than the other gc contenders to but he was in the break all day on stage seven so i thought well it's a pretty good day. He totally falls apart on stage nine. Um, weird that Jumbo sent multiple riders with him when he got dropped mid-stage, when it was obvious he wouldn't even be close to being in contention for the rest of the stage. I thought that was very strange. Um, and then leave Vindigard completely isolated and then let Sepp Kuz go up in the break two days in a row. I thought that was really odd. Um, definitely not doing Vindigard a, ser- a great service there. Um, but yeah, I thought that was interesting to point out because Al looks so good. You know, Maybe he was always going to crack, but. Makes me wonder about 2019 when he got fifth. Was that, was the race that much easier then? Is that such as a sign of how much harder the race is this year? Um, It possibly is. I mean, Pogacar, there was no one near any, near the level that Pogacar is now at that race in 2019. And maybe an example of that would be Garrett Thomas kind of easily getting second at that race in 2019 and then not even really being able to compete here. Uh, the, uh, The dislocated shoulder makes it hard to, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but. That, that was pretty stark that the two times thomas has been on the front if you remember stage two when he was trying to you know blow the race up at the bottom of the Mute britannia and then on stage nine on the climb to teen he was not only was he not blowing the race up he was almost slowing the pace down so yeah, That shows you that maybe the level is just that much higher here. And, and for those two guys, I was also thinking about this. Well, who in their right mind would want to be a GC contender right now with the rise of Tadej Bogacar? It's like, so what are you going to do? Go lose at the Tour every year? That kind of stinks. Like, maybe just stick to what comes naturally to them. Why try to warp yourself into a stage racer? So, or at least a three-week stage racer. So, yeah, I was wrong on that. Um, apologies for for dragging everyone through that. I I really thought they, they had decent. You know I have always thought Tadej Pogacar was probably going to win this race, but I thought the challenges might come for them. Certainly not from Ben O'Connor. I I really missed that. I'm excited for anyone who put a bet on him to finish on the podium because I think that is a very real possibility. Um, let's just talk about tomorrow really quick. This is a crazy stage. Um, I, yeah, I'm not sure if I've ever seen anything like this. So we have a sprint stage out of the rest day. And then tomorrow we have a double ascent of Mont Ventoux, the giant of Provence. This is a massive climb. I mean, the first ascent is 22 kilometers long. And then the second one's a little bit shorter. It's 15K long. Um, This is a brutal climb. This is one of the hardest climbs in the Tour de France. Here's a few caveats, though. It usually finishes at the summit. Um, Lance Armstrong famously was never able to win this. Um, And he's also, he's always said this was one of the hardest climbs that he's ever done. But it does finish on the descent, which will. Neutralize those climbs a little bit. Also, the first ascent, I don't think it goes through the wooded. There's a famous like wooded first 10k of the climb that is so steep. It is a brutal 10 kilometers. It's like average 10%. I don't think the first pass of it goes over that. They kind of join the road higher up, closer to where, if you remember, I think this was what is maybe 2016, 20. Maybe it was 2017 where Chris Froom. Got like hit by a motorbike and had to run without his bike up to Chalet Renard And they had the issue with the fans crowding the road. Uh, just think that it, it joins the road, maybe right below that. And then they go up to the summit of Antu. They descend. The only thing is that the, the summit of Antu, it looks like the, the surface of the moon. There's nothing up there. It is a barren landscape. So that could be, you know, it's really windy. I mean, that's going to be kind of a crazy summiting and descent. Um, if there's gaps, I guess gaps could get in the top is steep, you know, the the last kilometer, like gaps can be made in the last K. So I guess you could see someone try to get away on that first pass. But the problem is these climbs are so hard that I wonder if it's going to neutralize things that people will just kind of sit in. If you remember, we did have a double Alpe d'Huez stage in 2013. Um, it was won by Christoph Riblon, who was not a GC contender at the time. Uh, TJ Van Garderen got second on the stage, also was not in the GC at that race. And the, if you look back, the GC gaps are not exciting. Naira Quintana finished three seconds ahead of Joachim Rodriguez. Richie Port finishes a minute behind, Chris Froome a minute behind. Um, and then Chris Froome was still winning the stage by five minutes after that. And Naira Quintana moved in to third. Oh, for taking Roman Kreuziger. Wow, it's, it's crazy. It's like, feels like that was up a million years ago. And, and Nairo's still still going. But so, so that, I would say not, and that was a summit finish. And this is a descent finish, which is even going to neutralize the climb even more. So I hate to throw cold water on this. I think this is going to be wildly, wildly disappointing. Um, people have been at fanboys, Twitter fanboys have been excited about this since the route was unveiled. I think nothing's going to happen. You know, I, if anything, Pogatra attacks over the top and maybe take some time. I think any of the attacks are going to happen, you know, the last two kilometers of the second time up Ventoux, and this is possibly a breakaway day. You know, this kind of has breakaway written all over it. You know, it starts, it starts flat, you know, the defining the, the feature of uh, Mont is that it just rises out of the middle of Provence. So it's all flat roads around it. You're going to have Fight for intermediate sprint, and then the breakaway is going to have time to get away and build up climb. And it even starts with a 10k long six percent, six and a half percent climb that a break's probably going to go on. And then they're going to build their lead on the first descent of Von two. You're going to build it in the valley in the middle. And then I think it's going to be a breakaway day. And I don't think it's going to be that exciting, but it's going to be interesting. It'll be interesting to see just kind of the novelty of doing Von II twice. And I don't know if I might be wrong here. I've never seen them descend Von II in a tour stage. I don't think I've ever seen anyone descend on two on TV, so should be interesting to watch. And I certainly don't think anyone's challenging Tadej any anytime soon. This guy looks unshakable. Um, but there will be a fight, probably a fight for, I mean, the podium fight, I don't think it will be intense, but people will be trying to shake off Ben O'Connor. And if us is smart, they'll be trying to get rid of Vinagard and neuron. I don't know what I don't know. Tomorrow would be a big day for NEOs to see if, are they really just that weak? Are they that weak and that uninventive that they're just kind of going to go out with a whimper here or, or what's going on? Um, because today was bad and the last few days have been bad. I think, I think worse than has been publicized. I'd say going back from stage seven all the way through stage 10 um, has been kind of a bad look for them. I will say, to be fair, on stage eight, they'd set up some decent chess pieces. They had I think Jonathan at Castroviejo up the road. So when Carapaz attacked Pogachar, he could have dropped him and then met up with a teammate before the final climb. The problem is, Pogachar said, "See you later. I'll see you at the finish," and just left him. Um. So that those chess pieces did not even they did not matter. They did not come to fruition. So uh, yeah, I don't know. It's gonna be a big big week for Ineos. It, it looked pretty bad today. It looked like something maybe happened over the rest. The rest stage, he looked slightly disinterested, and Karapaz was up there by himself. And then Mikhail Kievkoski, who is a really good rider, um, I mean, former world champion, did make it back up to the crosswinds to help him. But, you know, one Kievkoski is not enough to unseat Tadej Pogachar and help you win or even finish on the tour podium. So I will check in later this week. Thanks for listening. You can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's daily analysis for paid readers, and free weekly one. And also rate this podcast five stars if you're listening on an app that lets you rate it. All right. Thank you. Bye.